Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in the Bible to John chapter 20. It is an account of the resurrection, so I do want you to know that we have not fast-forwarded a week. It is Palm Sunday. Next is Easter Sunday. But just in the course of our teaching through John's gospel, we're now in John 20. So, here we go. John 20. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. So John records, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. But now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So, let's pray together. O Lord, our risen Lord, let resurrection power stream from your own heart into every single one that's gathered here. Under the preaching of your word, we ask that you yourself would teach us with great effect, power that belongs to you alone. Persuade every heart of the truth and establish us there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Dear ones, we live in a culture of death. It shouldn't take an undeniable act of derangement to convince us of that. As Christians, we know how the story of the world begins and how it goes wrong. We know the wages of sin, that it's death, and how Adam, having sinned, plunge the whole world into that, into death. And so the Bible unfolds for us this story of dying, the story of death. It gives us the history of pain and loss. It prepares us for so very many sobs and tears. Being exiled into the world of death from the life that they knew in the Garden of Eden, could Adam and Eve, could they ever be happy like that again? Would the righteous, like Abel, ever be safe again? Observing the death toll of the flood, might we at least understand Noah's drunken despair? Might we understand Joseph's family troubles? Might we understand the pastoral burdens, the problems that Moses faced? with the people of Israel in the wilderness? What of Sodom and Gomorrah? In the book of Judges, you ever read the book of Judges? Was ever a time more dangerous and deadly than when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? What of Job's unrivaled sorrows? Why do we have a weeping prophet, Jeremiah? And then an appendix, to the weeping prophet called Lamentations? Why is Jesus recorded as having wept on multiple occasions but never having laughed? Why does he call us blessed who weep now? 
and only laugh later. Why is life incarnate crucified? The answer to all that is simply this. We live in a creation that is in bondage to decay. We live in an existence that is now torn by sin. We live in a culture of death. But as only the Christian knows, we live, we exist in this kind of creation, existence, culture, not without hope. As one put it, there's nothing, there is nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. So, a pastor and his wife can lose a daughter to an act of pure evil, and by God's help, they're able to bury her, to put her in the ground in the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The little girl's not a victim not just a victim with the others of a culture of death, but also one that we can hope is a victor by the mercy of the Lord of life. We say things like this all the time, but oh, to have them bonded to our souls, sweeping over the canvas of our lives. Oh, that is to really believe these things. You've got to going to make it. Nothing can be fixed by a resurrection that never happened. So Paul says, if Jesus is not raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. We Christians. But, he goes on in those liveliest words of the Holy Spirit to say, Jesus has in fact, as a point of fact, been raised from the dead. And it's John's whole purpose this morning to say the exact same thing. And in that way to give us hope. Like real, solid, certain, sure hope. It's to assure us that the story of dying is not the Bible's main plot, but instead the story of rising from the dead, that's the Bible's main plot. And Jesus is the firstborn. Let's come to our text and to the empty tomb. John tells us it's very early Sunday morning. It's still dark outside when Mary comes to the tomb and to a problem. She's come to finish off the burial process for the body of Jesus, and Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. The stone and the body, those things have been taken away, and so the body is no longer buried. As we'll come to see, This concerns Mary greatly. It grieves her heart greatly. But so she begets a lot of running. You saw that in the text. There's a lot of running about here. It's a scene with a lot of desperation and hustle. So she she runs straight away, verse 2, to Peter and to John, his beloved disciple, being the first person, Mary the first person, to report the news that the tomb of the crucified Jesus is open and it's empty. We should probably note there in verse 2 how she still refers to Jesus as the Lord. 
You see that? I take it as an expression of her great love and faith toward Jesus. No, resurrection has not dawned on her heart yet. She's slow like all the others to believe that, but in a way that kind of makes her insistence about who he is, about his identity, all the more worthy of our imitation. She has seen Jesus disfigured. She's seen him discredited. She has seen him dead by the worst of deaths, crucifixion, but that has not canceled out her hope in Jesus. So what others have said about Jesus and what others have done to Jesus has had no final bearing on how she views Jesus. He's still the Lord. In fact, he's still her Lord. Do you see that? Mary continues to exalt Jesus in spite of the world and in spite of its take on who Jesus is. Question for you, is your love for Jesus like that? Is it able to withstand the evil day? He's just been crucified. Is it enduring? Is it an enduring love? Is it ready to exalt Jesus as Lord when wickedness is permitted to have its darkest hour? Is your love for Jesus earnest and desperate and above all steadfast and unwavering for Him? In this world, you will have opportunity as Mary to still call Him Lord. Mary does that. Some of it may be that she does believe she'll see him again. That even this death, this awful death that he's experienced, has not been the end of Jesus, that he'll rise again at the last day. So whatever he taught in John chapter 11 has not quite yet rooted in her heart. So again, she clearly does not uh, suspect that he's risen from the dead at the present hour. Instead, he's been taken. He's been taken by someone they know not where, and it's just all alarming. And so now Peter and John, what we see in the text, is that they hear that alarm and they answer it. They answer the bell. They at least overcome, as we know from the other Gospels, this initial scoffing that the disciples had at Mary's report. They didn't think much of what Mary had to say, but Peter and John think enough of it, and they think enough of Jesus to run out and see it for themselves. So they're kind of Berean at this point, checking out the facts. Did this really happen? Is it really empty? And so the race to the empty tomb begins. And uh, this is where we get a bit of humor from John, maybe goading Peter just a little bit. Hey, Peter, remember when I beat you to the tomb? He's a little more sprightly than Peter. He arrives at the tomb first, verse 5. He doesn't go in, but he stoops to look inside, and as he does, he sees the various linen cloths, but no Jesus. And then, lumbering Peter follows after him, probably heaving as he arrives. (laughs) And as Peter would, he throws off all restraint. That's what we've come to expect of him. 
all restraint, thrown off, verse 6, and he goes right on in. He enters this vacated space. Just think for a moment, what a thing to walk about the grave that was reserved for you and me. The burial ground that Jesus bore for you. And find it vacated. Though they little knew it, we know it better, they were seeing the futility of their own graves to now hold on to them as they're walking around that empty tomb. They too, their graves too, will be emptied one day. They too will rise victorious over death and go to glory. And I just want to tell you, if you're a Christian this morning, so too will you. I have no doubt that John includes a certain detail to let us know just how impotent death is before the Lord of life. Do you see in verse 7 there? How the face cloth that had covered his head was now neatly folded up in a place by itself. That's John's way of telling us this is an historical account. These kind of details. He's telling us something that he saw with his own eyes that he thought was particularly striking. Something emblazoned upon his mind, his memory. Can't get it out of there. Something that also says this was not a heist. This was no grave robbery in haste. If it was, the clothes also probably would have been taken. Remember what the soldiers are casting lots for? His clothes. And if they weren't, they certainly wouldn't have folded them up, I'm guessing, as they were. So the empty tomb of the crucified Jesus has this atmosphere, my wife would love it, atmosphere of decor and order, neatness about it, right? Uh, it was not like my side of our bed. Hers is always neatly folded. Mine is always a wreck. And we just kind of laugh about it. It's all tossed in disarray, signaling haste to get somewhere or carelessness about folding it back up and putting it all together again or just the disabling residue of a deep sleep. I'm basically almost dead in the morning when I wake up, okay? So I'm staggering about and I'm trying to shake it off and arise. No. This empty tomb preached and omnipotent control with a most patient care. It's as if its occupant was in no real hurry at all. There's zero residue of death. Not just sleep. Death. No staggering about as if only resuscitated or at whatever little strength an eviscerated man, a crucified man might have retained it's as if he's completely healed, utterly aware, entirely alive. It's almost as if he's mocking his foes. Satan and sin and suffering and death as they now lay crushed beneath his feet. They've done their worst to him. See the cross. They've done their worst to him. And he's decorously, tauntingly just sort of 
brushed it off. Brushed it off as a sovereign Lord of life that Jesus is. Yeah, I'll just take this little face cloth right here and I'll take my time and fold this thing up and set it right here where I used to lay dead. A most glorious thing has happened to you. And the Bible puts it several mighty ways. Here's a few of them. Here, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Here, no one less than God raised Christ from the dead. Here, the last Adam secured life incorruptible from the dead. Here, what was sown perishable was raised imperishable, incorruptible, indestructible, the first of his kind in which you and I are now included. Here, death was swallowed up in victory. And newness of life and divine justification before God and steadfastness of labor in the gospel and hope, capital H, hope against hope was forever established. Oh, beloved, believe that. Do you see verse 8? That's what John did. He steps into that holy ground Peter gave him license. <laughs> he looks around, saw what he could. And what does he do? He believes. Now, of course, he was already a disciple. John's already a disciple. He's already believed in Jesus. But this is especially referring then to the resurrection of Jesus. John is the first to believe. Not that Jesus had been taken away out of the tomb, but that Jesus had walked away out of the He's the first to believe the resurrection stamp that is upon the gospel. And you know, I do wonder, I do wonder how much of that is related to the fact that he stayed. Remember, John stayed at the cross. Longest at the cross. Among the disciples, first to the tomb. Blessed first to believe in the resurrection. What, if any, advantage do you think John had over Peter in this regard? Having witnessed the cross, having heard those finishing words of Jesus on the cross that Peter forfeited by running away and sparing himself. All I'm saying is, faith will tend to come on quicker and stronger the more we know of Christ and Him crucified. And I don't just mean intellectually, but identifiably. In denying Jesus, when all seemed to be going the way of hell, Peter denied himself something that John invited by sticking it out. Worldly ire, Satan's spotlight, undesirable attention, 
Yes, yes, yes. But also, more communion with Jesus. More light upon the Word of God. More reason to grow bolder still for Christ. More readiness in view of Jesus' own willingness to submit to death. More readiness to rise again. More readiness for the resurrection. And so again, how receptive are we? As we asked back in John 18, how receptive are we to those trial spaces of Jesus? Is it not often fear of pain and suffering and death that keeps us out of those spaces? But what if all those things, pain, suffering, death, what if, what if they are finally toothless? And is that not the testimony we hear every single time we enter the empty tomb? It's glorious, I know. She's just praising the Lord. Now, if you look at verse 9, you'll see John notes something of really great value to us. He says he believed there not because he'd put two and two together, the empty tomb with the biblical testimony. He says he believed without putting those two things together, at least right here. Why is that of great value? It's of great value because what John is saying is not this. Well, the Bible said that the Christ must rise from the dead, and, you know, I, I really want Jesus to be the Christ. Like, I followed him for a few years, and so I like him, and I want him to be the Christ. And so even if he didn't rise from the dead, let's just say he did. Because the Bible says he must. No. He says that is, in fact, what the Bible says, but it took the resurrection of Jesus for us to truly understand that, to see that in the Bible. Okay? In other words, John wasn't yet in a place by Scripture to see the empty tomb and go, resurrection! A resurrection occurred, and by the fact of that resurrection, the disciples began to see, so that's what Psalm 16 is all about. Who knew? If that's still clear as mud, John is just saying, Jesus really rose from the dead. And in doing so, became still further the interpretive grid for all the Scriptures. That's greatly important for us. There is a popular preacher today who's saying, teaching, preaching, we need to tether the faith of this generation and the next generation to an event like the resurrection instead of a notion like the inerrancy of Scripture. And I hope you see in this why that's asking for trouble. Why that's nonsensical and spiritually untenable, even the devil talking. Remember Genesis 3. John says, the Bible teaches 
that Christ must rise from the dead. It is a divine necessity. And that Jesus did rise from the dead. But if the Bible doesn't need to be inerrant, without error, if the Bible doesn't need to be inerrant, if, if we needn't hold that it is actually the Word of God who cannot lie, then everything the Bible says may be called into question. See that? That's the first step people tend to take before they go on, in many cases, to deny everything else. The resurrection of Jesus through a necessary light on the Word of God that enabled us, you and me, to see in the Word of God how necessary it was that to be Christ, He be raised from the dead. But it's there in the Bible. So sorry, popular preacher. But these two things stick together and the church must stick, be tethered to both of them, this event of the resurrection to which inerrancy, the Word of God, testifies. Okay. So there's the empty tomb. It's visitors, it's remains, it's effects. But now, wouldn't it be grand? Wouldn't it be grand if we could not only see what's no longer in that tomb to be seen, but also actually see Him? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we only saw the empty tomb, maybe that would be enough for faith as it was for John here. But even then, so much has been left to the tabloids, to Twitter, to wishful conjecture, to bouts of doubt, and to the unimpeded suggestions of sin. I don't want to believe that because I want to do this. So, what if Jesus didn't leave it at the empty tomb? What if he didn't leave it to maybes or even quite possibly's? What if, to remove all doubt, Jesus actually appeared? And not just once, but like many times over many days to a whole lot of people, and this is the first instance of it. That is what happened. To verse 10 and on. You see that Peter and John here noted as the disciples, they return home. They go home. This is amazing. Empty tomb. That's enough. Away we go. <clears throat> and it seems that that is meant to highlight the extraordinary devotion of another unofficial disciple, which is Mary. Where they see and go home. She's seen, and what does she do? She stays until she's found the Lord. Or the Lord's found her. <laughs> Whichever way you want to. And what will be a growing countercultural move, one that acts to actually verify the truthfulness of the account, it's a woman who draws near to center stage on the biggest stage of Christianity. What we have in this Mary is a woman exhibiting deepest love to Jesus, only not, as you might have read in the Da Vinci Code, or whatever. Okay? 
is not romantic love, but the love of a sinner who has been radically set free. Mary is the woman in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, out of whom Jesus had exiled seven demons. Now, that's nothing to sniff at. Our world has seen its share of pure evil, past, present, and future. You just give a minute again to Twitter. I don't know if that's a cool thing anymore, but TikTok, whatever. I don't suggest it, but if you did, if you did, you'll find this kind of stuff in spades. Sin, evil, wickedness, demonic derangement. No joke. Mary was a woman who had been possessed by seven Demons, or call them devils if you like. What might that have looked like to you and me today? Anything that we would now want to associate with? Anything that we think could ever be saved, redeemed, delivered? Anything to which we'd speak the truth in love, in the good hope of a new creation, anything but a hellish winter with no divine spring within the realm of possibility. Yeah, I'm sure that's what Mary thought too. Thank God it's not what he thought. God sent His Son into the world to be the hand of God against all the strongholds of Satan, including demonic possession. And as it relates to Mary, bottom line is, she went from inescapable bondage to the evil and dehumanizing whims of demons, dark, defiled, destitute, damned to a woman you could not tear away from Jesus if you tried. Because Jesus had exercised His mighty grace towards her and set her free. He delivered her from so many torments of body and conscience and soul, and He had given her a clean spirit, a cleansed heart, a new life, everlasting peace. Jesus gave omnipotent grace to a devilish woman, and the devil lost a woman to Jesus. She became a child of God who was once possessed by these demonic principalities and powers. And the degree to which she acknowledged the love and power of it all is seen in just how much she loves Jesus. Have you and I forgotten? Have you and I forgotten? It's those who know how much they have been forgiven who love much. Isn't that what Jesus says? In Luke 7, 
this morning, as you sit, is your love for Jesus little or massive? How much do you love Him? If it's little, it might be, it might be that your view of your sins and of His grace are out of proportion with biblical proportions. I just tell you, you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine. But the grace of God in Christ is more powerful, more sufficient, more full to save you, to sanctify you than you could ever dare imagine. Have we forgotten what we were, what we used to be, how you were? what and where you might have been, and how it is only the love of God in Christ that's made the night and day difference. Well, so in great love to Jesus, Mary has stayed. You see? She stayed, and she's weeping. And as the love falls from her eyes, what a surprise meets her. She stoops to look into the tomb to survey the scene again. And as she does, verse 12, the woman who'd known fallen angels in her body, in her soul, enters the fresh presence of two holy angels who greet her. They're seated right there where Jesus had lain. And they ask her this pregnant question, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? I say it's a pregnant question because it's not really geared towards hearing her answer as much as it is supplying an answer that's sufficient to end her weeping altogether. Indeed, as we're to see here, it's really just their way of preparing her heart for the grand reveal. Hey, Mary, look over here. See these angels. There's something behind you. <laughs> and so she tells them, they've, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And again, as one dr dramatized it, is it that the angels simply motion her, turn around and see. And so having said this, verse 14, she turns around and sees Jesus, not laying somewhere as if taken out of the tomb and dumped. She sees Jesus standing upright on his own two feet, not therefore slain, but in every way utterly pulsating with life. Oh man, you'll find that if in love to Jesus, you stay after Him, stay after Him, stay after Him, the Lord will show up for you in ways you would have otherwise missed. 
Again, Peter fled for safety, and he missed the cross. Peter and John, I've seen enough with the empty tomb. Let's go home. And they missed this. Thomas is going to skip the first Easter service. You're going to see that next week. And in doing so, miss that appearance. And so they miss all the blessings that immediately and inevitably attend sticking it out a little longer. Dear ones, let me just encourage you. I know that we have unnecessary time consumers in our lives. Put them off. Put those things off. They just eat away your life and linger longer with Jesus. Linger longer after Him. And the Lord will honor it. He will, as we see, alight your dimness. He'll wipe away the tears from your eyes. He'll serve your heart. He'll assure you of His life. He'll assure you of His love. And then He'll send you out. He will commission you for the sake of the gospel. That's what He does here. That said, you see, she doesn't recognize Him at first. And so He repeats the question that the angels had asked, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? And then He adds this, because He knows the answer. Whom are you seeking? Can you imagine standing with Jesus and Jesus asking you, asking your heart, knowing full well who you're after, what you're about, who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? What a question. How could you answer that on any given day? Much less in the wee hours of, say, a Sunday morning. Who are you seeking? If she is weeping because she thinks he's dead and gone, Jesus would have her rejoicing at finding him alive from the dead and very, very present with her. Mary's anxiety is unnecessary. Oftentimes, as J.T. Ryle says, we can be kind of like Hagar. Remember that episode in Genesis 16, I believe it is? We can be like Hagar in the wilderness. We're dying of thirst. The whole time, there's a well right beside us. We just didn't have eyes to see it until the Lord opened our eyes to it. That's what's happening here for Mary. She thinks he's the gardener and tells him, if he's taking him away, she's in earnest to have him back. Just give him back to me. And of course, the great irony there is that he has done something with the body. Jesus has done something with the body of Jesus. He's risen from the dead. A gardener has not moved him. God has. But persisting in her pursuit, Jesus now obliges it. So sweet. Verse 16, doesn't he know your name? He calls her Mary. (laughs) Oh, golly. It's like when he called on Lazarus. 
Lazarus, come forth. And off the grave clothes went, and there he was alive. There's something in his calling her name that was not in his asking her the question. There is effect in it. There's illumination in it. The lights get turned on in her heart. You remember what he says in John 10? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Effect. And they follow me. So the shepherd here addresses the sheep. And she sees him, recognizes him, teacher. This is the great labor of Christ to us, beloved. The great labor of Christ to us to continue, not just once for all, but to continue to help us see him in his risen glory. What a ministry. Our brains are not enough. By all means, please, by all means, use them. We have enough brainless Christianity in the world today. Let's not be that. Use your brains. But to know Jesus like this, in a way that confounds our despair, in a way that drives us through life with a swelling sense of divine peace and hope, we need Jesus like this. To know Him like this, we need Him like this. We need to be sheep who are leaning into this shepherd. Jesus, please teach today. You wake up in the morning, you open your Bible, Jesus, teach. Give light. Give life. Set my heart ablaze. I'm so dim. And He says, Is that our daily prayer? As we long for Him, do we look for Him? And as we look for Him, do we lean into Him? Or though He lives to teach us effectually about Himself, do we go about our discipleship as if we were all we needed? I'm enough. I don't need Him. Do we go about it as if He were dead? And we were left to fend and figure it all out for ourselves. Listen, so much of our dimness, our dullness, our deadness, as individual Christians and as churches, is owing to our living our lives as if He were not alive but dead. We have no relationship with Him. We're not hard after Him. We're not leaning into Him. Who are you seeking? He is alive to give life as needed. He's the light of the world to give light as needed. You see how Mary responds in what Jesus says? What's she want to do? Come here, Jesus. (laughs) She wants to cling to Christ. And why wouldn't she? Isn't this the goal right here? Isn't this the goal? 
Isn't it all now finished? It is finished. He dies. He's buried. Alive. Isn't it over? Can't we be together now? Has he not been crucified and raised? Is he not then the incorruptible Savior of the world? Who can overcome you? She's just received him back. Can't she just cling to him forever? And the answer, of course, is yes and no. For now. Jesus tells her, verse 17, do not cling to me. Why? For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. I think he means his disciples here. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so he shows up to Mary to tell her, I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. And that that's to the benefit of all his sibling disciples. The benefit of all the children of God. Having defeated his foes. Satan, sin, death, hell. Having defeated his foes, it's time to take his throne. Now that he's risen from the grave, it's time for the king of kings to reign from above. It's time for him to go and prepare a place for us. John 14. It's time to receive the Holy Spirit from the Father to pour out upon us. It's time by that Holy Spirit to actually indwell us. That's new. It's time to intercede for us in an even greater way than He could on earth. It's time to create a mighty heaven on earth in the collection over Time, all the way to us now, of His new creation people. It's time. I'm going to go do that. Don't cling to me. Is that what we radiate to a dead and perishing world? As well as a needy and languishing church? The resurrection and the life of the risen King. Is that the news that we take? Is that the news that we show? Are we like Mary? Are we like Mary? Do note her obedience in the passage. She doesn't cling to Him. Everything in her might want to, but she doesn't. She doesn't cling to Him. It's Mary who goes and tells the disciples, not only is the tomb empty, but I have seen the one who vacated the empty tomb. <laughs> I have seen the Lord, and He has told me to tell you, though all of you deserted Him. Still, all is well with your soul. His Father is still your Father. His God, yours. Because of what He did on the cross. Oh, and He's also ascending. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you how verifying it is that the first herald of the risen Jesus is a woman like Mary, who had been possessed by seven demons, to men like these who are basically the rejects of that society. 
if you were trying to convince folks of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, the last thing that you would do here is write in a woman as its initial carrier to such unlearned fellows. It is an inauspicious start to Christianity. The testimony of a woman, you may know, was impermissible because weightless in a Jewish court of law at this time. And yet, for establishing the most pivotal event in history, John lays our faith at the feet of Mary's word. So, what you need to know about the resurrection accounts is really that there's nothing smooth about them. Nothing that goes according to human expectation. But it's almost the very roughness of it all that sets this scent of truth upon it. Plainly put, it's recorded just as it happened. Just as it went down. Not according to our own conventions, but according to the wisdom of God. Some disciples see him. Do you remember this? Matthew passage. Some disciples see him and they doubt. Why on the one? Why would Matthew say that? Why would he report that? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to convince people to believe Jesus is raised from the dead, some of his own disciples saw him raised from the dead and they doubted. Others didn't even make it that far because they did not believe Mary's report. Again, it's in the other gospels. And at any rate, it is a woman who first reported it. So none of it sounds trustworthy by the standards of men, but all of it is God's way of saying, Christ is risen indeed. It's just the facts. John is not concerned with what might make it easier for the spiritually dead to swallow the truth. He's only concerned with writing the truth that God uses to raise the dead and generate a living faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, listen, dying is not the Bible's main plot. The Bible's main plot is rising from the dead. It's new creation. So if you have not yet been it's being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's believing in the risen Jesus who died to save you from your sins and lives so that it is not death for you to die. Here's the only one who can bring you back into the presence of God with eternal life. So, won't you this morning, if you haven't ever before, won't you do what John urges every soul ever to do? And what John himself has done here in our passage, and just believe. Believe the truth. Believe the facts. Believe in Jesus Christ. And he will save you. Beloved, we live in a culture of death. But, right, not just a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. But, it's true, not without a living Christ. Trust that. There's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. No matter what happens to us, 
no matter what we do or don't do for Jesus in life, we know the tomb is still empty. Jesus is evidently alive. He's seated upon His throne. And it's clear in our text, isn't it? He loves His people. Just take that as it is today. And let it urge you, like those in our passage, to be running after Jesus with hope. Let's pray together. Oh Lord. You are on the throne. You are alive. You have life to give life we need. Please, please, please pour it out upon us. Any unbelieving person in this room, give them life from the dead. Cause them to believe. And every believing person, oh, we confess how much we need it. We need you to raise us, to awaken us, to revive us, to give us life. So please, help us to dwell, not just at the cross, but at the empty tomb. Help us to believe this record of the appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus and come and be with us. Be in us, be with us. Wipe away every tear from our eyes. Give us joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.